My favourite movie of all time uh, is Frozen. No, it's not. It's not. Um, <laughs> is Shawshank Redemption. And uh, wasn't received very well at the time, but has become a, a classic. And uh, there's many, many theological, wonderful, biblical illustrations in Shawshank Redemption. But um, <clears throat> for the passage today, um, when I see it in the movie, every time I watch it, I move from the movie to what Chris has just read. Um, uh, Brooks is um, one of uh, Andy and Red's inmates. Do you know that in the book, Red's Irish? He's black in the film, um, but uh, he's Irish in, in the book. But anyway, that's by, by and by. Um, Brooks is one of the characters in it, and of course they're there to try and uh, hope that they might eventually be allowed out of jail, and finally the day comes and Brooks is allowed out. But he's been in there for decades. And life on the outside, it's not easy. Before he went into prison, there were very few cars, and now he's getting knocked down as he crosses the road because he doesn't know to look both ways because he hasn't been brought up to look both ways because this whole new world that he's in is uh, far too complicated for him. And when he gets a job in a grocery store, he just can't keep up with the pressure of the modern age that he came out into compared to the age that he went into prison. He just couldn't deal with it. And yet he couldn't get back into prison where everything was safe and secure. And so he eventually takes his own life. Which, of course, Red considers doing later in the film when he gets out and experiences exactly the same problems. Freedom is not an easy thing. After decades in prison is one of the things the movie teaches us. And so we're back in the prison and they're all talking about the tragic news of Brooks's death has come to them. And Andy and Red, particularly the philosophers of the film, they're sitting there talking. And one of the guys, it's not Andy, I don't think, I'm not sure now, but I need to watch it again, um, uh, asks Red, why did that happen to Brooks? Why did Brooks take his own life? And Red says... He says, at first, you hate these walls. Then you accept them. And eventually, you become dependent on them. First, you hate these walls. Then you accept them. And eventually, you become dependent on them. And as I read those words and think about that and I used to show this movie every three years when the student turnover turned around at chaplaincy. Um, I couldn't help but think about some of my students and think about yourself if you were a student and think about the group of students you were in. Because when you're 18 and 19, you're really not happy with the walls of the culture around you. We were going to change the world. We were going to all go out to India and Africa and all these places and change things and deal with the injustices. We were on fire for God and for transformation in the world. I remember a number of years after I left university and a number of years back, Janice and I going to a Christmas party 
in the home of some of my students. They were all around there, both of us with our social anxieties, parties. But you have to make the small talk and the conversation. And it was maybe, would it have been 12, 15 years after we'd graduated? Closer to 10, maybe. And I could not believe the change in the conversation. Curtains. Who tarmacked the drive? Whether to put a conservatory in. Took up the whole evening. And it never did in the Great Hall. It never did in the Great Hall. Because in the Great Hall we were going to change the world. We hit at those walls. But we'd come to accept them. And maybe even eventually, we had come to depend on them. The children of Israel have come to depend on slavery in Egypt. Eugene Peterson paraphrases the first part of what Chris read to us. The riffraff among the people had a craving. And soon they had the people of Israel whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and got it free to say nothing of the cucumbers and melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. I was also drawn to Keith Green expounding this. That's back to my student days. If you're, if you're under 45, I imagine you've never even heard of Keith Green, but he was the kind of Christian radical singer when uh, we were around university. And he had a song called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. It was a comedy song with a bit of a punch, a preacher's punch, I would say. He says, well, there's nothing to do but travel, and we sure travel a lot, because it's hard to keep your feet from moving when the sand gets so hot. And in the morning, it's manna hotcakes. We snack on manna all day. And sure, we had a winner last night for dinner, flaming manna souffle. So you want to go back to Egypt. The rabble had got dependent on the walls. And they were prepared for a little bit of meat and the garlic sauce to go back to being slaves, whipped, controlled, oppressed. The people had been taken out of Egypt, but it proved more difficult for Moses to take the Egypt out of the people. And what they do here almost, almost is a request for the exodus to be reversed. God has done amazing things to get them out of oppression, out of slavery. Miracles have happened. Some of them not so pleasant. Plagues and Passovers and crossing Red Seas and all kinds of things have happened. God has given them that cloud and that fire and, and they've got out by the miracle of the grace of God. But now, now they want it reversed. We don't really care that God loves us. We don't really care that God has done something for us. We really don't care that he's given us a freedom. We would rather be back in the security and the safety of the walls of our slavery. Sometimes I feel personally that I'm somewhere in this wilderness 
between Eden and the New Jerusalem, to mention one of Desi's books and go off and Google it. Um, caught between the fall and the fulfillment of God's promises at the end of Revelation. And sometimes you feel you're meandering around. And I ask myself, where is the Exodus stockman different than the enslaved stockman? Where is the one who's been redeemed different than the one before he was redeemed? Had I, have I got too dependent on the walls of the culture that I wanted liberation from? Two things I want to draw out of this very quickly. Two things. One is that it's easy for us to not live the grace of liberation. It's easy for us to forget that God has given us his grace. Like we start at the service. God has lavished his love on us. That we would be called children of God and that's what we are. God has given us his grace. It's a gift. God's unmerited favour. I've been at two weddings this week. And that's what I left at the two weddings. The grace that God's gifting for us in our lives. God's grace is where we can find a belonging and a security and a preciousness of who we are. Where we can break free of collecting righteousness points. Where we don't have to try and do this, do this and do this to get our sense of being a somebody. But we're a somebody because we are loved by God and we're the children of God. We break free of having to compete with other people. All our insecurities and inferiorities of the impression of pre-freedom slavery. All those insecurities, all those inferiorities. I'm not as good as them. I didn't get as good a grades as them. My husband's not as handsome as them. Um, all the, look, look, I, would, I would just love to be... Ooh, I would, all those things that we compete and we compare because of our insecurities. We talked about this last week, did we not? When we were talking about the disciples and they were asking who was the greatest. And it was all because of all the insecurities we have within ourselves. We start comparing and competing. And we start wanting to make friends with those people rather than those people. And we, we start to, we're better than them. We're not as good as them. All of that is part of the insecurity of our slavery. But grace changes it all. Before I came to Fitzroy, you took one of my poems. It's called Juggling. I used to say it to all the students when they were starting out. Um, when you're born, uh, <clears throat> right at the moment you're born, you're, you're throwing a juggling ball. And Caitlin was throwing a juggling ball. The moment I saw Caitlin arriving, I had the 2018 Olympics and a 400 meter hurdle world record gold medal. But it had to be 2018 because that was the only way that Caitlin could beat Steve Redgrave's um, five gold medals before she retired. That was the first juggling ball I gave her. She dropped it pretty quickly. I think you would have to agree. But there's the juggling ball of the expectations that our parents put upon us and it, it, it makes us insecure and inferior at times and then we go to nursery and we have to get on with those other people who take our green ball or our yellow ball and then the guy at the front says that there's more in the team that's got the green ball and, and there's another juggling ball to try and work out with the peer pressure of friends 
And then we get the bigger school and they throw us another ball and you have to get this 11 plus thing or you have to get this thing to get to because they divide you because you're not as smart as them and you have to be smarter than them and, and you're juggling these balls and then all of them start to get confused because you get a wee bit later and they say, well, do you, you want to come out with us and have a, have a drink? And my parents don't, I'm not sure we want, and, and you, have the, you have all these balls that you're juggling and the problem is that if you're trying to please your parents and you're trying to please your friends and you're trying to do this and you're, it's hard to keep all the juggling balls and what basically Christianity is, is God says, drop all the balls. Forget it. You don't have to be in that slavery anymore. You don't have to be in that competitive anymore. Just drop them all, catch this. You're lavished with the love of God. You're a child of God. Now from that security, move on. And yet sometimes I think we're still back competing. We're still back juggling. And maybe church adds another juggling ball. Charles Swindle in a book, The Grace Awakening, um, which preceded what's so amazing about grace, and I think both were very influential uh, around the same time in in Christian's reading. He says, uh, in this book about grace awakening, he says, um, he quotes Shelby Foote in a monumental three-volume work of the Civil War in America. And and, uh, he says this, The Negro locked in a caste system of race etiquette as rigid as any he had known in formal bondage. Every slave could repeat with equal validity what an Alabama slave had said in 1864 when asked what he thought of the great emancipator whose proclamation went into effect that year. The slave said, I don't know nothing about Abraham Lincoln. And he replied, Set, they say he sought us free. And I don't know nothing about that neither. Swindle says, I call that tragic. A war had been fought. A president had been assassinated. An amendment of the Constitution had been signed into law. Once enslaved men, women, and children were now legally emancipated, yet amazingly many continued to live in fear and squalor. We've been emancipated from our insecurities and our inferiorities and are juggling to keep ourselves competing and comparing. But would we rather go back to Egypt? Are we still living as if we haven't been set free? Grace. Grace. It's not the way of the pre-exodus or the pre-redemption. But it is who we are now. And then living the kingdom. Grace is that thing within us that tells us who we are, lavishly loved, then how we live the kingdom. I'm always telling the story of C.S. Lewis's rings, the rings that get Polly and Diggory into Narnia. Book six, or written sixth, but actually the first one in the Narnia Chronicles. And Polly wants to go back to Egypt. They land in Narnia, and she wants to go straight back to Egypt. This looks scary. This looks difficult. I'm a bit scared. Can we jump back into this shuk? He doesn't use that word, but it's Ulster Scots we would use in Balamina. And get back to Egypt out of here. And Diggory says those words, those incredible words. What's the point in finding rings that take you into a whole new world if you don't explore that world once you get there? 
What's the point in a Passover? What's the point in all the plagues? What's the point in crossing the Red Sea? What's the point in these miracles in the desert? What's the point of God's love giving us this exodus? If we're going to grumble and complain in the desert and want to get back to our slavery again. What's the point of Jesus coming and being born in a manger, living among us, dying on a cross, being resurrected to life again, if we're just going to live the same old pre-redemption slavery? What is that kingdom like? Read Romans 12, 9 to 16 or 17 and you'll get it all. Honor one another above yourselves. Serve the Lord. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Be willing to associate with people of a low position. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. These are, this is big kingdom living. And you know, it was easy back then. I remember in sixth form, I came to faith in lower sixth. And um, I remember a few months before it, we were having a discussion in English literature. And there was a couple of people in the class who were Jesus followers. And there was a couple of people in the class who, I don't know what they were, but I was the atheist in the class. And I remember saying, the discussion was, have we ever been depressed? And I said, I've never been depressed because I do what I like. I'm an only child and I don't have any of your gods or any of your rulers. So if I want to kick the cat, I kick the cat. And I'm happy with that because I'm in control of my life. It's pre-exodus. But once we take the exodus... Once we take the exodus, then there's a calling on our lives. Then there's a calling on our lives. The grace that we get changes us into these weirdos. Won't take revenge. We'll love our enemies. We'll live at peace with all people, even those who disagree theologically with us. Imagine that. We're going to serve God and see other people as more important than ourselves. And as we said last week, and it says again in Romans, we're going to look for people of a lower position. Taking up your cross, forgiving your enemies, living for the other, seeking justice. It might be easier to be back in pre-exodus, pre-cross, pre-resurrection, pre-arriving in Narnia life. But what would the point be of Passovers and Red Sea crossings? Of mangers, betrayals, crosses and resurrections. If we just lived our lives the way we used to live them back in Egypt. Let's pray together. Lord, may we not be grumblers as the children of Israel were in this period post-exodus. May we be those who look back and see all that you've done for us, the freedom that we have in Christ, the grace that you've given us, and that then we might live that grace. Lord, may we never get to accept the walls. Or Lord, forgive us, be dependent on the walls. Lord, we pray you would knock the walls down so that we would live this way of God this way of Christ, this alternative way. In Jesus' name, amen.